Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we continue to take a, a closer look at uh, what God said to, to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent uh, following their sin. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Lord, we could hardly have before us a more important passage in the Bible. It is such uh, an amazing thing that all the way back, even in the garden, you gave this gospel promise, this promise of hope for a people that sinned against you. Lord, we recognize we had done nothing to deserve such a thing that, Lord, we had simply deserved the opposite. And yet, Lord, we're so thankful for the grace that you've shown to us. Help us, Lord, open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, to behold these, these things, these wonderful things about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us. Help us, O oh Lord, to see them and that we ourselves would be comforted by them and even be encouraged to grow in grace through them. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There have been some who have said, and I don't think it's wrong, that Genesis 3.15 is really the beginning of really what is worked out throughout all the rest of the Bible. That is to say that the, that the Bible itself is simply a working out 
of this promise which is made in Genesis 3.15, that all of the Bible is really about the story of how the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that's the, the, the promise which is made, and it is developed all throughout the Old Testament, and it is what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. This is the very first gospel promise and though it is, in, in a lot of ways, very simple, there's a lot that is actually being communicated here. Uh, obviously, it's not uh, being communicated with the same sort of clarity and depth of detail as we have in the New Testament. But uh, theologians have compared this verse to a seed. It is like the seed which is planted in the ground, and as uh, the Bible grows and develops, as uh, the scriptures are added to, uh, it is it grows into this beautiful tree uh, which uh, is a tree of salvation. This is uh, the way it works. Everything in the Bible comes from and is a working out of this particular promise. And as such, then, this first promise was sufficient for the faith of all of those who would believe in God from the time of Adam to Abraham. If you think about uh, the great passage in Job where uh, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in my flesh, I will see God. He has this unwavering faith, shows that he is a true believer uh, in God. And many have asked, where is it that Job uh, got that this great faith from? How is it that he could have known that he had a redeemer? Well, he was believing in the God who was revealed in this very verse, that there was a promise that a redeemer would come who would crush the head of the serpent and who would bring in eternal life. Now, this is, again, the very first promise. It's the thing that's developed all the way uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, but we're going to look more closely at what is actually being said, because this verse is challenged very much today. Uh, many will say that this is not actually speaking about the Messiah. It speaks of, of no such thing. And, you know, others doubt, you know, um, if we can't even see that it's referring to the Messiah, or if it's doubted so much today, could Adam really have known that? Could Adam really have have understood that this is actually speaking of the coming of a particular Savior. This is something that, again, is doubted by many people today, and this is what we're going to look at uh, more particularly this week. Now, you'll remember this is the second sermon now uh, on verses 14 through 21, the speech which God made to the serpent, then to Eve and to Adam, and then the response that comes in verses 20 and 21. Last week, we looked particularly at the curses which uh, God pronounced on uh, on the three uh, characters, uh, the serpent first, then the woman, and then Adam. Here we see that even as God is cursing the serpent, he is actually at the same time giving a promise for all those who would believe in him. And that's what we're going to look at uh, more this morning. And what we'll see is that God has promised salvation to his people through the judgment of the serpent, that even as he's offering this curse on Satan, it is this curse on Satan, which is the salvation of his people, that this curse on Satan leads to eternal life. Now, we'll look at this under three headings. First, in verse 15, the promise which is given, which is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Then we have the statement of faith, showing that Adam actually did recognize uh, what was going on in verse 15. He understood this to be a promise, and he believed in the promise. We see that in verse 20, the statement of faith, which we see through his naming of, of Eve, and then the reconciliation which follows, which we see with God's clothing, Adam and Eve. So we have uh, the promise, the statement of faith, and the reconciliation given 
uh, through the different parts of the narrative. So look with me again then at verse uh, 15. Now it's a wonderfully amazing thing that we have here in verses 14 and 15, the curse on the serpent. The serpent is cursed before the woman or the man. And here in verse 15, we have the promise of salvation, the very first gospel promise. Notice where it comes in the context. It comes before Adam or Eve receive any curse. Think of the grace of God in this. They have sinned. They deserve God's judgment. And God will execute judgment. There will be a curse which is pronounced upon them. They have no no way that they can claim God's grace. And yet here, before God utters one word of curse, he gives them the promise which will be the basis of every believer's hope all the way till it's fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that grace. They are expecting nothing but judgment, and the first thing God does is speak this wonderful word of promise. So let's look a a bit more closely at verse 15. There are a number of things going on. There is enmity that's put between um, a number of people, and then there is the statement at the end, that there is a a singular person, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, again, there there are many people who will say that this is not referring to the Messiah. Um, It's it's sort of just a a modern way that people try to deny the truth of Scripture. And the reason why that's said is because people will say things that like seed in Hebrew, even though it is grammatically, it looks like a singular, it actually is referring to a group of people. Uh, sort of like the word people in English. You can say people, peoples. Um, you say, so people is, a, is, a, is in some sense grammatically singular in, in some contexts, and yet it refers to more than one person, and that's the way seed works in Hebrew. Uh, therefore, when it says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, it's not referring to one individual. It's rather referring to a group of people, and therefore this is not referring uh, to the Messiah. That's, that's the way the argument goes. And we ought to recognize that that at the beginning of the verse, in verse 15, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is between the serpent and the woman, that is enmity between two people. And we do recognize that that the word for seed is a collective. When it says, I will put enmity also between your seed and her seed, that is referring to more than one person, more than one seed. There will always be enmity between these two groups of people, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. However, also in Hebrew, Whenever you have a, and now we're, we're going to get into a, a bit of grammar. I do apologize for this. There's just, there's just not really a good way to do it without actually using these grammatical terms. But if you remember what a pronoun is, uh, a, a pronoun is a word that takes the place of a noun. In Hebrew, anytime a pronoun has a word that's a collective as its antecedent, it refers back to a word like seed, which could be singular or plural. And the pronoun itself is a singular then the author is indicating that he takes the collective to be a singular. This is why the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 said, the promise does not come to seeds as though it were many, but to seed, a singular one, which is Christ. It's not that he's ignorant that Hebrew has the idea of a collective. He just recognizes that the author had made it clear in the context. There is a singular person. And so here in verse in Genesis 3.15, we have this very quick shift. That there is, on the one hand, enmity between these two groups of people, this plural seed, and yet there is also a singular representative of that seed who will crush the singular serpent himself. There will always be enmity between these two groups, and yet there will be a representative from each group who will do battle, and it will be 
the singular seed who will win, who will crush the head of the serpent. There are a number of, of clues even within the text that shows that this is what the author is doing. Uh, seed, um, the, the fact that the seed of the serpent is being con- compared with the seed of the woman gives us the idea of more than one. But then the comparison between the two individuals is not the comparison between a plurality seed of the woman and a plurality on the other side, but it's the, it's the comparison between an individual and the serpent himself. It's not that the, that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman crushes the serpent himself. We're given the indication that this is uh, speaking of a single individual. And the reason why the scriptures go back and forth so quickly between the idea of many and, and the, a many and a single individual who's connected with that many is simply to make the point that those two are connected. That when the seed of the woman defeats the serpent, it is a victory for the seed of the woman as a whole. They share the same name, therefore they share the same destiny. These two things are connected. And the scriptures very, uh, very often do this. In Isaiah chapter 49, uh, the Savior that's spoken of there is called Israel. Many people will try to use it to say that, well, Isaiah 49 is not speaking of the Messiah. However, the Isaiah 49 very clearly is speaking of one individual who later in the same passage is said to be the Savior of Israel. Now, how can Israel save Israel? Well, the point is that there is one individual who is the true Israelite, and as the representative of his people, he will save his people. And the Bible is not strange in speaking this way. It simply has always spoken this way. It's not that this is something out of, out of the blue. Uh, the, the Bible, even from the very first gospel promise, teaches this union between the Savior and the people that he would come to save. Union with Christ here is being, being spoken of in its very seed form from the very beginning. And the scriptures from beginning to end always speak this way. And so we can say that there are two things that will be true. There, just as there is enmity between the woman and the serpents, as seen from their dialogue, and the sin that was the result, so there will also always be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the church and those who are outside of the church. There will always be this enmity. This is why there is persecution in the world. We. This is why uh, Peter himself writes in his letter. He says, "Don't don't think it's strange when you undergo all these fiery trials." When there is persecution, don't think it a strange thing. It's not something strange. It's something that's always been common and will continue to be common. There will always be enmity between these two groups. But also then there is also a victory which is promised. There will be one who will come from this particular seed, the the seed of the woman, and he will crush the serpent's head and his victory will, will mean a victory for all of the seed of the woman those who are always at enmity with the seed of the serpent. Now, that being said, I do apologize for the uh, the extended grammar discussion. Um, that being said, there's, there's something else which we see, particularly at the end of verse 15. Let's look a little bit more at what is actually said will happen. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice here that, that the the way that the destruction of the serpent is described is not just that there will be a a one from the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, and that's it. It is actually a mutual blow that will be struck. And one author has even pointed out, you know, if, we, if we're going to say that the uh, one means that the serpent will die, we 
inconsistency. And the Hebrew actually makes this clear. The verbs for crushing or bruising are the same in both cases. That it is likely also being uh, communicated that there will be a fatal blow sent the other way as well. The serpent will be killed, and so will the seed. But in that death, the serpent will be defeated. This very first gospel promise indicates that when the Savior comes to save his people from the serpent, that there will actually be a suffering that will take place. It'll be only through suffering that the Messiah himself will win a victory over the serpent. The serpent will come at the Messiah. The Messiah will come at the serpent. And there will be a mutual blow which is struck. Now, if we were to ask, when did this happen? Well, of course, we we recognize this is what happened when the Lord Jesus Christ came. This is why the scriptures say that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to die. The scriptures taught this even from the beginning. There is no salvation without a suffering Messiah. It is in the suffering of the Messiah that the Messiah will, in fact, defeat Satan. And this is why the author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, it is through death that Christ has defeated the one who has the power over death, even the devil. Or think of what we've been looking at uh, in the evening services in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, that while he's on the cross, he himself has nailed to the cross the record of debt which has stood against us. He was an action of not just him, the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified, but as he himself was crucified, he himself was crucifying to the cross the record of debt sent against us, which is now completely canceled. And on the cross, as he's dying, he is disarming and defeating all of the rulers and authorities in this world. It is through death that the Messiah will win this great victory. And this then is the very first gospel promise. There, there will be these two groups of people, one who believes in God, one who does not. There will be a representative who will come from the seed of the woman. He will defeat the, the, the serpent himself. He will do this by suffering himself, but in so doing, he will defeat the great enemy that caused the fall. This is what was being promised. And as I said, this is the thing that has worked out all throughout the Bible. And even in a number of ways, it's hinted at and alluded to, developed more strongly. Uh, you think in Judges, there's a couple of places in the story uh, of, uh, of Deborah. There is uh, the battle with, with Sisera and Jael, the way she ends up destroying Sisera, and this is said to be a deliverance from God, is she takes a spear and plunges it through his head, particularly in his head. Think of, of Abimelech as well, one who opposed the ways of God. He's, his head is crushed uh, by a millstone. Think of David and Goliath, particularly that one. There you have uh, two representatives from opposite sides. And uh, Goliath is killed by uh, first having a stone lodged into his head, and then his head uh, is cut off. And even in the description of Goliath, he is described in ways that make him appear to be like a, a serpent. He is described as having scaly armor, that sort of thing. Uh, and so this is all of a development of this thing. As one author has put it, in the Bible, in the Bible, bad guys get heads broken. Bad guys get heads broken in the Bible. That's, that's what happens. And even we see this not just in terms of what happens as God reminds his people over and over again as he sends deliverer after deliverer and he defeats the enemies of God in the same way to teach them trust in this coming Messiah. It's also the matter of just uh, of open prophecy. We had sung earlier in Psalm 68. I, I had meant to, 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 to uh, indicate just singing the, the back half and that's, that's my fault for, for not doing that. But in the back half of that Psalm, 
God says that when the when uh, salvation comes, it will be a destruction uh, of God's people who are described uh, like serpents. Also in Psalm 89, the same thing is said in Psalm 110 as well. Uh, the enemies of God are defeated and they are crushed in the same way. Um, not only this, in Psalm 72 uh, and in Isaiah 27 as well, there is the Leviathan, the dragon, which is slain uh, by God himself uh, as a very clear working out and, and continued development of this great promise that God will defeat uh, all of his people. Even the, the description of God's enemies as licking the dust is something very common in the scriptures. Uh, as that's that's the way the serpent himself is cursed, and all of the enemies of the Messiah, as we read earlier in Psalm 72, as we're reading together as as a congregation, all the enemies will come cringing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will lick the dust. This is another another passage in Micah, which we looked at in the evening services as well, speaks the same way. The Bible is very clear. This this what is promised here is the salvation which is offered. God will defeat the enemies of His people. The enemies the seed of the serpent and the serpent himself. And this is even what the New Testament teaches as well. As uh, Paul alludes to the same passage when he says at the end of Romans chapter 16, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ has a victory over Satan, so all of his church will uh, as well. And then another uh, important passage is, of course, Revelation chapter 12, the passage which we uh, read uh, earlier as well. That this the ancient serpent, the devil, was thrown down and he was uh, defeated. All of these things are indications from the Bible that this great promise has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, if we were to ask, uh, what does what does that victory actually mean for God's people? What it, what benefit will the people of God receive when the serpents? head is crushed. What benefit will they receive from that act? Well, uh, one thing that I think is very clearly implied in the promise is that they will receive eternal life. Think of think of the context. R- remember, before ser- the serpent comes to them in the garden, they have the opportunity to have eternal life. They're actually in a state at that point where uh, they their bodies won't deteriorate. Their death has not yet entered into the world, and they have the opportunity to have life confirmed for them. Now, if what is being promised to Adam and Eve here is that there will be one who comes from the seed of the woman who will destroy the serpent, would it not be an incomplete victory if the serpent, if the serpent has his head crushed as destroyed and yet death, the result of the serpent's work is not also destroyed? If the serpent brings in death through the fall, he's destroyed and yet we are still in bondage to death then that seems to me to be an incomplete victory. That uh, if the serpent's going to be destroyed, there must also be a restoring to the life that we had before the serpent came, and even better, because there will be no more serpent to cause us to fall. There must be a confirmation of eternal life. This is what is being promised here. And so you could ask, well, that seems a bit strange or at least a bit difficult for people to understand, Did could people really understand that what was being offered was salvation in a Messiah and eternal life on the basis of this promise? Well, it actually does appear that this is exactly the way Adam understood this promise. Look at what he says in verse 20, which is, has been taken historically to be Adam's confession of faith. 
And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, I've said this is part of his confession of faith. How could this be the case? Why would him calling his wife Eve show his faith in the promises of God? Well, remember the context. They have broken the covenant of works. And God has told them, in the day which you eat of this fruit, you will die. Death is the main penalty of breaking the covenant of works. The, the theme of death is very strong. Then when Adam and Eve received their curse, particularly Adam, because Adam's the head, he was going to receive the curse on behalf of all mankind and all the creation. The thing, the climax of the entire curse is death. You are going to die. You are dust and to dust you will return. And this is God being consistent with the thing that he had threatened. If you break this uh, covenant, you will die. And yet he names his wife the mother of all the living. Think about that contrast. You will die. And then he receives this word from God where he's where he is told you will die. In the curse, right after the curse, the first thing he does, he names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. Though death is now the curse, yet by naming his wife Eve, he shows we have hope that there will be life. Where did this hope for life come from? Well, it came from an understanding that this was a promise. And it's even it's even more important as we recognize that there is a special way in which Eve relates to the promise that Adam does not. It does not say that one will come from the seed of man, and the seed of man then will just defeat the head of the serpent, but particularly Eve. Eve is the one through whom the promise is given. It will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, Adam recognizing that this promise will come through his wife and that life will come through the action of the seed of the woman. Names his wife the mother of all the living. This is the one who will give birth to the Messiah. And I believe that even though God has threatened death, that yet we will live. Even though uh, I may die, yet in my flesh I will see God. Even though death was threatened, yet I believe life will come. This is the way Adam understood the promise. If the seed of the woman crushes the serpent, we will be restored to everything we had before he attacked us and before through his actions we had this death upon us. I understand if anything less is given, then it's not a true victory. The serpent will be crushed and we will have eternal life. This is is what uh, Adam and Eve confessed uh, in his faith when he named his wife Eve, which is the Hebrew word uh, for life. And so what does this mean for you then? Well, this promise has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and for all those in him. The seed of the woman, the singular seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the seed of the woman in terms of the group is the church. All of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in truth. And what is being offered, what was being offered to Adam is the same thing that is being offered to you. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Not just some small salvation, but there will be eternal life. That the seed of the woman has defeated the one who has the power over death through death itself, which means death is at an end for all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also means for you, it's important to remember, you know, one of the things that's often said by people is, you know, God is harsh that he sends uh, people to hell. Now, his judgments are always just and good and righteous. But notice again here the grace of God that before he even 
utters one word of judgment, he gives the word of salvation. And this is, this is what is always offered in the gospel. Though you are under the wrath of God for your own sins, if you do not believe in him, yet there is a word of salvation. If you will turn to him, you will be saved. The victory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be your victory, just as the victory of David over Goliath meant the victory for all of the Israelites themselves. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is the message from the very beginning of the Bible. Before the first word of judgment is given, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And not only that, not only did Adam recognize this was a promise and believe in it, that it was a promise of eternal life, and we also see that there was a reconciliation which came. Notice in verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, you remember uh, in the context, if you remember in verse 7, after Adam and Eve had sinned and fell, they realized that they're naked. They realized their shame. And then they tried to make themselves clothing, which is, which is, uh, which is inadequate. But they do that in order to cover their own shame. And here, uh, God, rather than leaving themselves to inadequately cover their own shame, he himself makes clothing for them and he covers their own shame. And again, just like the promise coming before the word of curse, it's very important that we see that this is the first action of God after he speaks. And that's to say that it's the, it's the action of God that takes place before Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Before the judgment of exile is executed on Adam and Eve, there is a statement where God makes it clear that he has accepted them because of their faith in the coming Savior. Before the judgment is carried out and they're exiled out of the garden, they're given clothing by God to cover their shame. The word of grace and the action of grace precedes the word and action of judgment, highlighting the wonderful mercy and grace of God. Now, if we were to ask, well, what does this mean for you? Well, all of those who sin have a corresponding shame which comes with it. If you are here today and you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know something of that shame, even if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember that shame, that shame of sin itself, a shame which uh, very often, uh, if you are not a Christian, what do, what do people do? They try to do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They will cover themselves with fig leaves, make for themselves uh, horribly inadequate uh, clothing in order to try to cover the shame. And the reality is, is that the shame cannot be covered. The, the message of the, of the scriptures is not that you have to do something yourself to cover the shame of sin, but you are to receive rather the covering which God himself has made for all of those who trust in him. The religion of the Bible is not a religion of works where you make the covering yourself as Adam and Eve tried to do. It's rather a religion of grace where it is provided by God himself. And this is what is, of course, being offered to you. Remember what is what it says in, at the, in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19, that God himself grants the church fine white linen as she prepares for the wedding feast of the Lamb. It says the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God himself provides the last covering that covers all shame so that we can then be restored to relationship with God. 
Remember, this shame is what caused mankind to hide from God. It prevented any sort of relationship. But here, God covers their shame so that they can now continue to relate to God on the basis of this promise of restoration in the coming Savior. And so this is the first gospel promise. Even as God is executing judgment on his people for sin, even then he is promising them salvation. Now, there are many, many layers to this text, uh, as I'm sure is clear uh, just by uh, this explanation. So let's remember, what is it that's being communicated here in terms of the promise? What does this text teach? There is one Savior who will come from the seed of the woman, that this Savior will be the Savior for the larger seed of the woman. He will defeat Satan, and it will be a defeat which comes through suffering himself. He himself will suffer as he defeats the serpent himself, and this defeat of Satan will result in eternal life for all of his people. This is what is being communicated. This is the first gospel promise. It was sufficient for the faith of all of those from Adam until Abraham when the promise was expanded. Though death was threatened, life is what came, which we see ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he died, yet three days later, was raised from the dead, that that Eve might be the mother of all the living, not just those who die and have and have uh, the effects of the curse put on them, but the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living one, and all of those in him who are destined for everlasting life. May God grant all of you the grace so to be found in him on the last day and to know the blessings of the victory over the serpent, the devil, and to know the blessings of eternal life, which is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know you to be a just God, as your word says, that you are a God who does not overlook evil. You are of pure eyes than to behold any evil. You are the God who visits the sins of the parents and on the children to the third and fourth generation. You are a just God. And yet, Lord, is not your word a wonderful declaration of your grace that even though you maintain your justice to the third and fourth generation, Yet as your word says, you maintain your grace, love, and mercy to those who fear you to the thousandth generation, O God. What a wonderful thing that even when we were dead sinners, even when we could expect nothing except for the curse of sin, even before you pronounced that curse, you gave this wonderful promise that you would save a people for yourself through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, help us who live uh, so long after the giving of that promise, even a long time after the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Lord, help us to live in the great light of these realities. As for Adam and Eve, these things were the distant hope and the the great hope of the future. But for us, these are the realities that we live in, the, the realities which have come to pass. Lord, you have been so faithful to all that you have promised us. Lord, build us up in this grace that we might worship you for all that you've done for us, that we might be confirmed in grace and so reach that end where we will be restored fully and finally in the consummated new heavens and new earth to fellowship with you forever, where we will enjoy you into all eternity. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.